Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 22. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door on the side of the ark and make a lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Amen. Father God, as we look into your word, I pray that you would just give us open hearts and open eyes to what you are teaching and what you are instructing and what you are placing as a seed within our hearts and that it would um, germinate and that it would grow and that it would flourish in our hearts this morning and in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we're beginning this new series for the summer and maybe a bit longer uh, into September, the series is on Jesus. And because I want us to focus for a season on the purpose of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and and uh, what he's doing and his teaching and his good news, and so you say, Paul, that sounds great, but why have you just read from Genesis chapter 6? What are we doing in the story of Noah if you want to talk about Jesus Well, let me try to explain it this way, and it's important that we sort of get this in our heads. When when our son Isaac was younger, he loved to watch movies. Okay, you with me? He loved watching movies, and he still does love watching movies. But we were very cautious parents with Isaac, and so we were very careful about what we allowed him to watch at what age. And so for a long time, probably longer than most kids, uh, he watched what you might call children's movies. And uh, before he was watching very serious movies with, you know, like, like live actors and serious things going on. And, and we always watched those movies with him, together with him, as, as he started to watch them. And as these movies got a little more serious and these movies were starting to deal with more significant themes, as inevitably happens in any movie, the hero in the movie faces more and more adversity. And 
Isaac would get more and more nervous and more and more worried about what was taking place to these people that he was seeing on the screen. And there's in the movie, in the story, in the script, there has to be wrongdoing. There has to be some harm done. There has to be some challenge that the hero faces. There has to be a suffering that must be ended. It's the harm or the wrongdoing or the evil in the story that is the very thing that sets up for us the anticipation of the heroic ending, of the culmination of the story. And so as we're watching these movies with Isaac, and he would be getting increasingly nervous and afraid of and, and disappointed in either the bullying or the harm or the wrongdoing or the evil or the violence that's taking place in the movies. And uh, I would have to say to him as we're watching, Isaac, it's going to get worse before it gets better, okay? Because this is what makes the movie, this is what makes the hero heroic. If he wasn't bullied, if he wasn't put down, if there wasn't a challenge, if there wasn't adversity, if there was not a great threat to overcome, then there'd be no glory in the heroic moment at the end. And so Isaac, prepare yourself in anticipation for the heroic moment when all of this evil and all of this adversity is overcome. And so that's just something Isaac had to learn as he watched movies, that it always gets dark and bad before it gets better. And you have to feel the weight of the harm and the weight of the trouble, sort of, and and movies that do it well and stories that do it well draw you in so that you are actually captured by the amount of trouble that is in the story. And if they capture you that way, then you rejoice and you anticipate the happy ending, the heroic resolution. And so we have to keep reminding Isaac of that when we were watching the movies when he was younger. It's the very darkness of the threat that generates in us the anticipation of the redemption. And so I say that now as an illustration. It's a very pale imitation. It's a very small picture of what God is in fact doing, not in story, but in reality, in history. All through the Old Testament, all through the history of mankind, Before the foundation of the world, before this movie, this movie that we're living in right now, before this story even started, before the foundation of the world, God already had planned an answer for our crisis. He already had a hero that was going to be victorious on our behalf. And that's the hero we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Jesus. But we can't start to talk about Jesus without anticipating his coming. We can't really appreciate everything that Jesus was and everything that Jesus did and everything that he is doing and has taught and is doing with us. We don't have any anticipation unless we look first in the Old Testament at the beginning of the story to understand just how heroic our hero is. And so that's what we're doing today. Part one, two-part series on anticipating Jesus. First, anticipating him in this part of the Old Testament in the situation that we are in and the crisis that needs to be resolved. He came to save us. He came to redeem us. And unless we understand the seriousness of the trouble that we're in, we won't really appreciate how great a hero he is. And so why is Jesus needed? And and what is he doing is the story of humanity It is, in fact, the very seriousness of our condition and the direness of our situation that reveals the glory of our hero. He is far less glorious if we are in far less trouble. And the more trouble we're in, the more glorious he is. 
And so that sort of story is unfolded for us at the very beginning of the Old Testament. And God builds into the Old Testament immediately the anticipation of Jesus. It begins in the first few pages of the Bible. You can't even get out of Genesis chapter 3 without calamity befalling humanity and immediately the anticipation of our hero Jesus beginning. So let me back up just a little bit and quickly go through the first few chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, the story of mankind begins with God's creation and God's joy in making us in his image. And chapter 1 ends very hopefully with God saying, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is a closer look into the making of of Adam and Eve. And and so chapter 2 ends, everything is still very good. Creation is still as God intended, but not for long. Things very soon become very bad. And as most of you know, there is a tree that Adam and Eve were not to eat from, and the whole paradise of Eden was theirs for them, and they walked with God in the evening, and they talked with him, but they were not to eat of that tree. But then in Genesis chapter 3, 6, the serpent came and tempted Eve, and when the woman saw that their tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then, as you know, the inevitable confrontation with God. God returns to walk and talk with Adam and Eve, and they hide, and God questions Adam about their disobedience and how it begins, and Now it starts. Adam immediately turns on Eve, and he blames her for his sin of eating the fruit. And he really blames God. He says, it was the woman that you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit. You know, and so the buck passing begins. It was you, God. It was her. You know, all I know is I went to sleep single and I woke up married. (laughs) And you, you picked the woman, so... It's either her fault or your fault, I'm just saying. Right? And then God turns to Eve, and Eve does the same thing. She blames the serpent, Satan, an angel that God had created, essentially saying the same thing. It's his fault, it's your fault, it's your servant. He did it. And as God establishes the consequences for their sin, the death has now entered into the world, entered into the universe, really. We have this first anticipation of Jesus Already, right here in Genesis chapter 3, God says to the serpent and to Eve, he says many things, but he says this in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. And so right there in Genesis chapter 3, as things immediately fall apart, God immediately establishes the anticipation of the hero to come. This is not that the girls aren't going to like snakes, Okay. This is that the offspring of Eve, that the human race will be at war and at enmity with Satan, and that there is one specific seed that is coming. There is one offspring of Eve's, excuse me, who is coming, and this offspring will crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent strikes at his heel. And so we have this anticipation of the hero to come. This is the first gospel. God says that there will be a hero that will crush the serpent, even as he is being struck himself. But it gets worse before it gets better. 
And shortly after that, in Genesis chapter 4, their son Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel and leads his brother out into the field and kills him, the very first murder. So things are going downhill. And then as you go on in Genesis chapter 4, you get to about the fifth generation of Cain's great-grandchildren. You have men like Lamech who are rising up, and Lamech who brags about his violence and his boasting at the end of chapter 4, Lamech says to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold. And so here's a man now married to multiple wives, and so now you have polygamy starting, and he is saying, if you even strike me, I kill you, and whatever you do to me, I will do to you seventy times, let alone the seven times that Cain might repay you. And so the story gets worse before it gets better. And this is the way the world went as we turned away from God. The world followed the way of Lamech. And we arrive inevitably where we were reading in Genesis chapter 6 in the story of Noah. And in the record of Noah, I believe we have to read first and foremost, and what we have to have land on us in this story of Noah and the ark is the total and complete crisis that the world is in, that humanity is in. And this is the purpose of this record. This is the purpose of this of, of why this is recorded for us. It's not to debate the merits of shipbuilding or animal husbandry or to talk about the significance of ancient weather or geology or geography, which we often get caught up in in this story. That's not why it was written. The purpose of the record of Noah is to without question establish the absolutely horrific reality of our abandonment of God. Look at how God establishes his record of the story. In Genesis 6-5, he sets the, the purpose of it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's why we have this record. And then in Genesis 6, 11 to 12, he says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This is the point of the story. Okay? It's about the corruption. And we're now in Genesis 6, and we're a long way from Genesis chapter 1, which you remember ended, ended with, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That was just a few chapters ago. And we are a long way away from that already. And so the impact of the fall of mankind away from God has touched every part of the universe. It's accurate to say that absolutely every wrong in our world is because of sin. If there were no sin, everything would be very good. Everything created in the heavens, everything created in the earth would be very good as it was on that last day of creation. But because of sin, everything is very bad, from world wars to terrorism, mass murders, serial killings, plane crashes, auto accidents, fires, maiming of people through accidents, nuclear reactor disasters, radiation poisoning, pollution, cancer, heart degree disease, all illness, all broken relationships, all divorce, all orphan children, all drugs, all crime, all dereliction in all forms, all confusion, all conflict, all struggle, all disappointment, all anxiety, all fear, all guilt, all depression, all sorrow, all failure, all remorse, 
and all lust and all selfishness and all pride and all hatred and all covetousness and every rebellion and murder and stealing and irresponsibility and even as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, even disobedience to parents. It's all the result of sin. That is the state of humanity. That is the state of mankind today. We see it in our own world. That without God, we are disaster. All evil, all sadness, all failure, all despair, all death is because of sin. In Romans 8, 20-22, Paul reflects on this. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope, in hope, in anticipation, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's how Paul saw it in the New Testament era. And our sin caused this. Our sin continues to destroy us. And we have to let the weight of that land on us. We have to really feel that in our hearts and in our in our souls that this has landed on us, that the record of Noah spells out for us in the clearest possible terms the complete depravity of mankind apart from God and the consequences of our sin. This story is not, in fact, a children's story. You get it, right? This is not, you know, the felt ark with all the cute little animals hanging out the sides of it, the giraffe and, you know, wondering why he didn't swat the mosquito when he had the chance. This is a story of the destruction of the earth because God is done with us. It is our absolute darkest night. And you say, now wait a minute. That was before the flood. God found a righteous man in Noah and we're born from better stock because we're all descended from Noah, not those sinners that he destroyed. But the record of the Old Testament doesn't let us get away with that argument. You don't have to go very far until you find out that we really haven't changed all that much. In fact, in chapter 8, after the flood, God is establishing his new covenant with Noah, which we're going to get to near the end. But he says, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. God knows. God knows that it's hasn't really changed. Mankind is still morally corrupt. But he called Noah righteous, you say. He said Noah was a righteous man. And and you have to understand that, that when the Bible uses the word righteous in relationship to man, it's not using the word righteous as in perfect. When the Bible uses righteous in relation to man, it means that it's a man who agrees with God that he's sinful. Right? You see that in, in Psalm, uh, 32, when David says, Blessed is he, or righteous is he, whose transgressions are forgiven and who acknowledges God. And in Hebrews 11.7, it explains why Noah was righteous. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. He became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. That was the righteousness of Noah. The righteousness of Noah was not that he was a perfect person and that he wasn't going to do any evil. We know that because then he got drunk, like right after he just built this altar to God, he got drunk and fell asleep in his tent after drinking too much. Um, And so it's not because he was a good man that he was considered righteous. It was because he believed God and he had faith in God and he recognized the condition of his own heart. 
In Romans 3.10 it says, and in Romans Paul is quoting Psalm 14 and 53, but Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And if you reject that truth about the condition of the human heart, your heart and my heart, then you literally strip away the need to anticipate Jesus. That's why this is important. Because if we somehow convince ourselves that we have a righteousness or that we're not really all that bad, then we don't really need all that great of a hero. But the story of Noah and the fact of his righteousness not being his own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes by faith and how that needs to land on us is the reality that there is no righteousness in and of ourselves. We can't muster up any of our own goodness. And so we absolutely have to look forward, not just because of the condition of the world, but because of the condition of our own hearts. We have to look forward in anticipation to this Savior that God hinted at in Genesis chapter 3 and that he will now point towards again in the story of Noah and the ark. Because if you minimize the seriousness of our sin, if you skip over or you treat lightly the depth of our depravity, your depravity, my depravity, and the danger of God's just and righteous anger against us, then when you minimize that, you are at the same time minimizing and reducing the glory and the anticipation we have in Jesus. So you have to understand this. It is Sometimes we're afraid to admit just how bad we are to God, like we're going to disappoint Him or He's going to be embarrassed by us if, if we actually just confess how absolutely and utterly broken and hurt and depraved and broken we are. But in fact, when we do that, that is the... The best thing we can do to bring the most glory to God is to agree with Him fully. When we fully agree with Him just how desperately we need Him, then that is exactly how we bring the most glory to Him and His Son. And so don't be afraid. Do not be ashamed. Do not worry about confessing and about bearing your heart to God about just how badly you feel. Because that, when you align your mind with Him and you agree with Him, you are giving Him the most glory. And you are showing the most anticipation for the rescue that Jesus is and the salvation that he brings. And so don't don't hide your badness from God. He already knows it, and he agrees with you. And when you agree with him, you become righteous and you bring him glory. And you just make his son look all the better for what he has rescued you from. There is no righteousness of our own, and there is a great danger in our sin. The message of Noah and the flood are these three basic things. One, the wickedness of man is great and his heart is full of evil. That God hates sin and there is judgment for sinners. But God does not abandon his purpose in mankind to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory through people who follow him. And the flood looks forward to an unknown and an unseen remedy which has not yet arrived. Firstly, that the wickedness of man is great and his heart is full of evil, I think I have already made plain. But the flood also portrays for us that God does hate sin and his judgment is for sinners. Remember, he said, the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have made them. And he said in 6.13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in 17, he says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on earth shall die. 
Is God clear on his intent here, what the story is about? Do you doubt the crisis that mankind is in? Genesis 7, 21 to 22 tells us the conclusion. He says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, the birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land on whose, in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And so the lesson is simple enough. And in that respect, it is a children's story, right? If you tell this story just straight up, just just read it to a child who never heard it before without any prompting and ask them, what it is, what do you learn from this story? If they're listening, they'll say, God is angry at sinners and God punishes sin. That's the story. It's simple. And Jesus teaches the same thing about sin in Matthew. When Jesus comes, he says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Jesus says the same thing. God is tolerant up to a point, but he will not tolerate sin and sinners forever. And he judges the unrighteous and the sinful. But the third thing is, in spite of the depth of the evil of the human heart, God does not abandon his purpose or his promise to rescue people and make them his own. And this is where the anticipation comes in. The story of Noah only hints at the final rescue. It creates an anticipation of the need for rescue for sure. We're all very, very aware of our need to be rescued, and it reveals God's plan and desire to provide a way of escape for his people, and there is a way of redemption for those who have faith in him and protection, but it simply hints and points towards the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate redemption that is to come. And here's where that hint comes from. Let's end on the hint and the anticipation of the hope that is to come. It comes in the conclusion to the story of Noah and the flood. It's found in Genesis 8 and verse 20. At the end of the flood, and before God had made his covenant with Noah, because he's making a new covenant now with Noah, he says, Noah, build an altar to the Lord. Or it says that Noah did build an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And then he goes on to make his covenant with Noah. What is that hinting at? God's gracious covenant with Noah was a response to a complete and pure sacrifice. Notice what he says. He says, Noah took every clean animal and every clean bird. It was a total sacrifice of purity. As God's covenant is established in this sacrifice, it points forward to another covenant that's coming. A perfect sacrifice that is going to be made. And in that perfect sacrifice, God is going to establish a new covenant, just like he did with Noah. And so we have here, in the story of Noah and the flood, and the absolute depravity of mankind and the judgment of God, we have at the end of it this hope, this anticipation of a new covenant, of, of a new relationship to come, and it comes following a perfect and complete sacrifice. And that sacrifice is coming. Not for many thousand years, but it's coming. And that perfect sacrifice is Jesus, is God's own Son. 
And God doesn't tell us this story just once. The whole Old Testament, as you go through it, I'm just giving you a taste of it this morning, but the whole Old Testament, as you go through it, is anticipation after anticipation after anticipation of the Savior to come. You think the Old Testament, oh, we live in the New Testament. We don't have to go back and read that stuff. No, you do. You have to go back and read the Old Testament because it is nothing but a precursor to and an a bold arrow, a compass pointer straight to the Savior that is coming that we're going to be talking about all summer. He doesn't tell the story just once. The flood I picked because it maybe is the most stark and the most startling. And that's why God wrote it, to set in our hearts the seriousness of the story that he is telling and that we are a part of. But the Old Testament continues with the history of Israel, along with the history of all the nations around Israel, as a picture over and over and over again of the anticipation of a Savior to come as Israel fails and is redeemed and fails and is redeemed time and time again. There's the picture that he paints with Abraham and his son Isaac and the supply of the ram at the altar. Or Joseph, abandoned by his brothers, and we'll get into him later. And the restoration of the family through Joseph, or Moses and Israel, or Boaz and Ruth, or David and Goliath, or Daniel and the prophets. It's impossible as you go through the Old Testament to read the Old Testament and not see its purpose in anticipating Jesus. Building into it the history of the world and building in us an unavoidable awareness of our need for redemption and pointing unmistakably at our Redeemer. And so how does that land on you today? Because we're at that point in the movie where I had to say to Isaac, it gets bad before it gets better. And it has to land on you about how serious the crisis that mankind is in so that we can anticipate the amazing glory of the hero that's going to come. And so I hope in your heart this morning it's landed on you in that way, that at this point in the story we have to really absorb it's our sin. It's our evil. It's our violence. It's our broken relationships. It's our hurtful actions. It's our disregard for God that has caused this. But when we repent of that, when we come to Him and agree with Him and say we need redemption, then we anticipate and we bring glory on the Savior that is to come. And God's going to tell us that story as we go through His whole book this summer. Let's pray. Father God, it's not the part of the movie Isaac likes. It's not the part of the movie I like. It's not the part of the movie we really like when we have to come to terms with just how bad things are and that the the badness is in our own hearts, that no one seeks after you, that we all lash out in selfishness and hurt and we do hard things and evil things, things we're not proud of, things we wish would just go away. Father, I thank you that you've provided for us a way of redemption, that we don't have to live in the legacy of Cain and Lamech, but we live in the legacy of your son, Jesus Christ, because we agree that you are righteous and you are pure, that we are fallen, and that by your son we are saved. And so, Lord, create in us as we look in these Old Testament stories and look at these Old Testament people, create in us a new anticipation of how amazing Jesus is. Because he did not come just to deal with minor inconveniences in the universe. He came to destroy death and to deal with evil on a level we can't comprehend. And he did it victoriously. 
And so we look forward to that hero, to that glorious Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.